Hey, everybody, this is Craig Valentine, and I'm here with Peter Osborne from GlutenFreeHealthSolution.com. And Dr. Osborne is one of the leading experts in gluten-free nutrition in the world. So we have a really excellent call today. And, Peter, welcome to our call. Thanks, Craig. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. This is a question we get a lot about, you know, how, how to eat gluten-free. And you've got some very interesting information from your patient work and from studies that you've read. So why don't we start with your background and, you know, your credentials and how you got interested in the general health field first. You know, what was, what was you know, Peter like when he was growing up that got him interested in this? Well, growing up, I was uh, I was always to a certain extent as health conscious as I guess a, a young man could be, but it wasn't until I really got into weightlifting pretty heavy uh, after high school and started studying nutrition that I really developed a passion uh, for health. And so uh, I ended up going into the Air Force and from there going on to college um, and majoring in biology and then pursued a degree in chiropractic medicine and uh, was a trainer for a number of years while I was going through graduate school. And then um, I also went through an additional program and received a diplomate with the American Clinical Board of Nutrition, and I'm also a licensed pastoral medical uh, doctor. So, And, and where are you based, Peter? I'm in, I'm in Houston, just outside of Houston, Sugarland, Texas. Great. And then, sorry, I interrupted you there. What were you about to add? So I um I started my practice about 10 years ago and uh and that's kind of where where my whole um I guess you could say ventures into gluten gluten sensitivity and and diet really took a turn for a more advanced turn uh in treating chronically ill people. Well, mostly what we do is treat chronic sick people who have autoimmune disease. So I have a lot of experience in taking people that are I mean virtually half dead. Uh, on death's doorstep and, and restoring their health and bringing them back uh, to the real world. Yeah, it's a real hot topic these days. And, and you once told a story about a young guy named Michael, a young child, who uh, seemed like he was one of the first cases that you were involved with. So can you tell us a little bit about that and how you got really, really focused on this gluten-free nutrition? Sure. So I, I had a young patient with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, and he was terminal. He actually was given six months to live by his doctors. Uh, it was such a it was such a severe condition. He had a permanent stent injected into his arm. He was in and out of the hospital so frequently on IVs. And uh, the Make a Wish Foundation actually stepped in and granted him his wish because it's because the case was so severe. And so when he first came to see me, um, you know, we did a diagnostic workup and. What was interesting about about Michael is he was on all these different types of medications, and uh, he he was actually gluten sensitive. It came out. We did some genetic testing and other tests to determine that. And um, when we took him gluten free, he almost recovered fully. He didn't quite recover fully, uh, but he was alive again, and he was uh, no longer terminal. And then we later discovered that he had some other nutritional allergies that he was being chronically exposed to. And once we figured out that he was gluten sensitive and he figured out he had these other food allergies and we cleaned his diet up, uh, he came back to life. He's now off of all of his medications. That was eight years ago. So today he's, you know, he's moving up into high school and he's in band and he's doing, he's doing absolutely fabulous. He's in complete remission. That is an incredible story. And, and when you tell it in person, it's even more amazing because you get so fired up by it and you know you can see why because it's you know the, the the kid like you said he had his wish granted that's that's pretty serious and so i can see why you're so passionate about the subject now now let's look at the general population and talk about what percentage of of people need to be on a gluten-free diet or trying gluten-free diet to get rid of uh, the many problems that they have and maybe you can touch on the, the problems that a gluten a diet containing gluten can cause in people. So sure, there's um, there's a list of diseases called autoimmune diseases, and kind of what these are. These are diseases when the immune system becomes confused and starts attacking the body's own tissues. So general examples would be rheumatoid arthritis, or lupus, or hypothyroidism, uh, eczema or psoriasis. 
they've now identified even uh, Alzheimer's disease as a potential type of autoimmune disease. So there's only one known cause for autoimmune disease, and, and that is primarily gluten sensitivity. And so when we ask the question, what is the prevalence of autoimmune disease in the United States, we know there are 23 million cases of diagnosed autoimmune disease. So this is actually the number one condition in the U.S., but it gets blunted out because there are 190 different forms of autoimmune disease. Doctors tend to separate them out into their different distinct names. Now, we don't do that with any other form of disease. When we talk about heart disease being one of the top killers, we include all forms of heart disease in that number. When we talk about cancer, killing a million people a year, we include all forms of cancer in that number. But with autoimmune disease, we don't. So it's one of these under-recognized disease entities in the U.S. So that being said, if it's that common, if there are 23 million people and we know that gluten can cause and contribute to autoimmune disease, then at least 23 million Americans need to be looking at going on a gluten-free diet as opposed to being injected with immune drugs or given very strong uh, anti-cancer medications to treat autoimmune diseases they've been diagnosed with. It's well, estimated... autoimmune what what are some of those autoimmune diseases, uh, Peter? Just to you know, that's that's something that I can understand, but a lot of people uh, won't know what that means and what falls in that category. So primarily, what falls in that category? There again, there are 190 different autoimmune diseases. So some of the more commonly known ones are people with low thyroid function. They've gone to their doctor, and the doctor says your thyroid doesn't work as well as it should. That's a form of autoimmune disease. People that develop skin conditions, there's a skin condition where we get plaques all over the skin, and doctors will call that psoriasis. Uh, that's also an autoimmune disease. Again, autoimmune diseases, what happens is the body becomes so confused, uh, the immune system is so busy fighting the food that it doesn't have the resources to fight the rest of the environment. And then as it's become hypervigilant, as the immune system turns on and, and to such a strong degree, it gets confused and starts attacking a person's own body. So like we name the autoimmune disease based on the location. So there's a form of hepatitis or liver disease that is autoimmune in nature and can be caused by gluten. Uh, gallbladder disease, a person that's had to have their gallbladder removed is a form of autoimmunity or can be. Type 1, there's a t type of diabetes that's autoimmune. So patients with diabetes should be screened or checked for gluten sensitivity. So, again, it's all based on the location. That where the immune system starts attacking the body is how a doctor chooses to name the autoimmune disease. And so that's why there's so many different forms. Does that clarify it a little bit better? That's fantastic. And then uh, I interrupted you when you were, going, when you were talking about something else there. Oh, so it was, it was the statistical question of how many people in the U.S. actually have a gluten sensitivity or need to be concerned about gluten. And so the, the most recent data that's been published uh, in scientific literature estimates that anywhere between 3 and 30% of people in the U.S. Uh, could potentially be gluten sensitive. So, I mean, it's not, okay. I know it's a, right. it's a very large varying number, but it, it's, it's really hard to ascertain these kinds of things in research studies because when you do a general study, when you screen 10,000 people, you know, you you can't really make the assumption that those 10,000 people are, are a true representation of the entire American continent. Right, right. I appreciate that. And now, it's not so extreme that it's everybody, correct? Well, there's some really unique in, uh, research that's coming out now, uh, not, not so much gluten sensitivity. So gluten sensitivity is a distinct entity where when a person eats gluten, they have these immune system reactions and it can trigger autoimmune disease in the individual. But there's another component to gluten that was recently discovered uh, by a group of doctors at the University of Maryland. And what they found is that eating too much gluten, whether you're um, gluten sensitive or not, tends to have an effect on the intestines. And so it can create... Um, it can create a condition in the intestine known as intestinal permeability or what very many common lay terms, it's it's referred to as a leaky gut. So what happens is, is little microscopic pores start forming in the gut wall, and so food starts leaking into the bloodstream. And it just creates a lot of immune problems for people. So whether or not that happens to everybody hasn't been disclosed, but there's some 
some pretty good new research that's saying that happens to a, a lot more people than what we originally thought. Okay, also very helpful. Now, what about checking for this? How does someone go about figuring out whether, first of all, they're, they're at that extreme of their gluten sensitive and they, they are at risk of those autoimmune diseases or maybe that's the cause of them, or then how is about, you know, just with a general population, how do they know whether or not they're eating too much gluten? So the absolute best way to identify whether or not a person should be avoiding gluten is through genetic testing. Because gluten sensitivity, contrary to popular belief, a lot of people think that gluten sensitivity and celiac disease are the same thing. But in actuality, gluten sensitivity is not a disease at all. No more than a peanut allergy or an egg allergy is a disease. People that have these food allergies, if they don't eat those foods or they'll get sick. Well, gluten works much in the same way. If a person's gluten sensitive and they eat gluten, they'll become sick. The problem with the gluten sensitivity, though, is it causes autoimmune disease. And, and so it can take 30 years of exposure before an autoimmune disease develops. And that's the conundrum. So if a person says, oh, I'm healthy, I feel good, it doesn't necessarily mean they're not gluten sensitive. It may be that the disease is just taking, you know, as it's building internally, it takes a certain period of time for it to actually become symptomatic in that individual where they start manifesting the symptoms of the disease to be able to get a diagnosis. But for a lot of people, what happens is that gluten people that are gluten sensitive, they'll develop small symptoms at first. It, it's usually not really big, horrendous problems at first. It might be small things. Um, and those small things could be as simple as fatigue. They just don't have energy or brain fog. They can't think very clearly. It could be small things like irritable bowel where they have bouts of constipation or where they have a lot of loose bowel movements or where they get mysterious rashes popping up on the skin from time to time. It's the small, subtle things. I've had patients where their only symptom was spontaneous nose bleeding. They didn't have any other health issues just randomly their nose would start bleeding. So there are a lot of little subclinical kinds of symptoms that people can manifest early in life before they develop major diseases as a result of gluten exposure. So what's recommended is that if a person has a family history of autoimmune disease, in other words, if anyone in their family has any form of autoimmune disease, then it would be smart for that individual to get genetically tested to determine whether or not they have the genes for gluten sensitivity because Regardless of whether you're sick, if you have the genes for gluten sensitivity and you eat gluten, you will develop illness over a period of time. And some people develop illnesses earlier in life, and some people it takes much longer for the illness to manifest. Now, that genetic testing, uh, how is that done? Where does someone go and get that done? Um, the best – well, you can, you can attempt to do it through your doctors. Um, the problem is, is – when we analyze genetics, there are specific gene patterns that are looked for with celiac disease. And, and these patterns oftentimes are recognized by most doctors, gastroenterologists, internal medicine doctors know what these genes are. They're actually, their, their formal names are HLA-DQ2 and HLA-DQ8 patterns. But the problem is, is doctors stop there. They don't look, there are other subsets of, of the same group of genes that are not HLA-DQ2 or DQ8 but are gluten-sensitive genes. So in essence, the doctor doesn't, they look for celiac genes, but they don't look for the other gluten-sensitive genes. So if you go to your doctor and the test comes back negative, it doesn't mean you're not gluten-sensitive. It just means you don't have the celiac genes. So the best place to look to go and see whether or not you have the gluten-sensitivity genes is you, anybody can call my office and we can, we can get somebody set up to do genetic testing. It's very easy. It's a cheek swab. There's no invasive... Uh, component to it. It's just a matter of swabbing the DNA from cheek samples and then sending it out to our lab. And what we do is we look for these other gene pieces that are, uh, in essence, non-celiac gluten-sensitive genes. Fantastic. Now, there's something else that you mentioned a lot of people are missing, and that is you mentioned that you know, most gluten-free diets are still failing for specific reasons. So, this is uh, this is where the call gets even more interesting. Tell us about that. So there have been a couple of, of major studies done in the last 10 years where we've looked at patients who were following what we call traditional gluten-free diets, traditional referring to the origin of gluten sensitivity as we know it, dates back to 1952 
there was a German physician who was treating children with celiac disease. And during World War II, all grain was rationed. And so in the hospital, the grain was not available for consumption. And what happened to all these patients with celiac disease is they all went into remission. They all healed. And when the war ended and grain was available again, they all ended up in the hospital again sick. So that's where the actual traditional definition came from because the staple grains in Germany are wheat, barley, and rye and oats. So those are the four grains that classically or traditionally are referred to as the gluten-containing grains. But by definition, by botanical definition, all grains have different forms of gluten. And the scary part of it is when we follow patients on these traditional gluten-free diets, the ones that continue to eat other forms of gluten as substitutes in their diet, up to 92% of them don't heal. And we're not measuring the healing by how they respond and how they feel. We're actually measuring markers of inflammation and how white blood cells infiltrate their gut and create damage. So these are things that a person doesn't necessarily feel but they can contribute to things like lymphoma and other forms of cancer. So these patients won't heal following a traditional gluten-free diet. And so we have to redefine the traditional gluten-free diet, and that's kind of what, what I've been trying to do for the last 10 years, and we're making finally making some headway. We've got some studies that have been published, and, and the name of the, the actual definitions of gluten sensitivity has changed, uh, I think in large part uh, based on a lot of the work that we're doing here. Now, would you say that a lot of uh, it's kind of like the an, analogous to the fat-free and you know low-carb uh, commercially made foods? Would you say that the gluten-free foods that you find in stores are are really kind of pushing the envelope of? I wouldn't say that they're you know uh, lying, but are they are they kind of not accurate in, in that they're full of junk? I guess you might say. Well, one, they're full of junk. They certainly are full of genetically modified and highly processed, highly sugar-loaded, hydrogenated, fat-loaded foods that are just not healthy. So even if we were, you know, even if even technically if they were gluten-free, which many of them are not, we would say they weren't healthy. So then that breaks our cardinal rule of nutrition, and the cardinal rule is you, you can't maintain or, or obtain good health eating food that isn't healthy. So it just it just doesn't make sense to trade one food that's destroying your health because you have gluten sensitivity for another food that's just not good for you when you're trying to heal from years of gluten-induced damage. But many of these foods also, they contain the other types of glutens. And so on a, from a food labeling perspective, you have to realize that food labeling laws in the U.S. pertaining to gluten are strictly voluntary. There's no legal requirement to say gluten-free or there's no legal definition to define what gluten-free means on a food label at least not in the U.S. It may be different in Canada, but I, I'm not certain. But in the U.S., there's no legal definition. So you can actually, legally, you could have a product that contains lots of gluten and call it gluten-free and, and not get in any trouble over it, although you probably would run, run yourself out of business. But I think with the manufacturer claims of things that are gluten-free, I think it's a lot of plausible deniability. A lot of the research on other forms of gluten um, being discovered and causing damage for people with gluten sensitivity is new. So a lot of this research is, you know, we're talking about less than 20 years old. And in medicine, you know, it generally takes 30 to 50 years to disseminate new information before it becomes mainstream. Uh, so when you have a study that's 20 years old, that's what we consider that study to be relatively new. So a lot of the research on identifying new glutens and discovering new glutens has just really been done in the last 20 years. We just a colleague of mine in Australia discovered 400 new gluten proteins last year, and 40 of these 400 were more toxic than the original glutens discovered in 1952 that we were referring to earlier. So when you have when you have new discoveries coming out this quickly, and you have a food industry like the gluten-free food industry that's billion-dollar-a-year industry and growing very very quickly, and not staying abreast of the current literature and the research. That's where the, the problem becomes because they've created an entire gluten-free food market that, one, it's not really gluten-free, and, two, a lot of those foods are extremely unhealthy regardless of their gluten status. Yeah, that's a great point. Now, I heard, and uh, I was really looking forward to your answer on this, is that the way of farming in the United States has has created um, grains that are more concentrated in gluten compared to ones in Europe so that sometimes when people go to Europe for a long time they have fewer symptoms even though they're still eating gluten because of the grains in Europe aren't as uh, strong and heavy maybe 
perhaps uh, uh, genetically grown for gluten like they are here. Is that correct? In, in part, it's correct. There are several reasons, actually, why that happens. One is that, yes, we've hybridized a number of wheat strains to contain two to three times more gluten content than their original uh, ancestral grains. So we have certainly more gluten exposure in the U.S. But the other component is the dough conditioning elements that we add to the grain. One of those, if you've ever looked on a bag of flour in the grocery store, it'll say brominated flour. Well, bromine is a, is a molecule that's added as a dough conditioner. And studies show that when you mix bromine and gluten, it synergizes, kind of like those old caffeine ephedra uh, aspirin stacks that people used to take. If you take aspirin by itself, no big deal, but when you add ephedra and, and you stack those, those three drugs together, uh, it becomes synergistic and it works even more effectively at, at speeding up the heart race and getting blood going to certain vessels, etc. Well, the same thing happens when you mix bromine and gluten. So you get an exaggerated uh, effect from gluten. But then the third thing that, that has happened is the, is the way we treat the grain, and this has nothing to do with genetic manipulation. It has to do with what we add to the grain before we ever even grow it, is we douse a number of these grains and hormones, the seeds themselves before they grow. And, and so we get this additional effect and it's not a gluten effect. It's just a, a, a health effect that's not good for us. So people can react to grains for a number of different reasons. One of the reasons is because of gluten, but other reasons because of what they spray the grain in, what the, that there are certain funguses that will grow in our grains that some people react to that are not as prevalent in Europe. And so when they go to Europe and they're doing their travels, they notice that the grain doesn't bother them as much. Well, this has just been a wonderfully terrifying call so far. So let's switch over and let's talk about the benefits that people will see if they go gluten-free. Let's talk about the real positive stuff here. And, and when someone does this, does everyone who has sensitivity experience these, uh, these benefits? On average, now I've treated thousands of patients, and so there's always that, you know, that biochemical individuality from one person to the next. You, you can, obviously, you can't predict that it's going to be this way in everyone. But on average, most people with gluten sensitivity notice dramatic improvements within the first two months. And some of those improvements are regulation in bowel function because symptoms of gluten sensitivity range from diarrhea to constipation. So we see some people that have diarrhea uh, have regular bowel movements. Other people that have constipation have regular bowel movements in the opposite direction. Uh, we see a number of people with chronic fatigue and just generalized muscle aches and joint pains uh, clear up. One of, that's probably one of the most common symptoms is joint pain, especially in athletes. And, and what, what we hear overwhelmingly from athletes is, oh, it's an old injury. And so then the question that I pose is, well, I mean, if you get a cut, does it not heal or does it just bleed in, in forever until you bleed to death? And it kind of turns the light bulb in their head. You don't just have an old injury that forever hurts you. Your body's very resilient and dynamic and will heal, provided you give it what it needs to be capable and able to heal. And so when you're when you're taking in massive amounts of gluten, that's one of the areas that it loves to attack is it loves to attack cartilage. It loves to attack muscle tissue. So we get a lot of patients with fibromyalgia and chronic joint pain and chronic arthritic pain. And, and that's one of the quickest symptoms in my experience to see clear up. Uh, one of the other symptoms that we commonly see go away are are um, memory issues, memory issues and mental clarity issues. So the brain fog, the inability to remember short term, the inability to recall simple phrases or words. This is one of those uh, one of those very very common side effects of the, of being exposed to gluten that a lot of times goes undiagnosed because what do you call that? There's not really a disease name for brain fog. Um, so doctors just kind of dismiss it or prescribe ADHD medications like Concerta to increase concentration abilities in patients without actually ascertaining the cause or the origin of the brain fog, which in many cases is gluten. Uh, what about energy levels? Energy levels uh, very commonly will improve. If, if, if that's the major complaint, uh, energy levels oftentimes improve. One of the reasons why, Craig, is because we have there's a there's a whole other realm of side effects that happen with gluten, and that's the realm of micronutrient deficiencies. So what that means is when gluten damage the, damages the intestine, it hinders the body's ability to absorb vitamins and minerals from the food that we eat. 
And so probably three of the most common nutritional deficiencies linked to gluten sensitivity are vitamin B12, iron, and zinc. And all three of those nutrients or vitamins, minerals, cause anemia. So when you're deficient in those nutrients, you develop anemia, and anemia medically is defined as a lack of oxygen, not getting enough oxygen supply to the tissues, and that causes fatigue, shortness of breath. Uh, you know, a person might climb stairs and, and have to catch up and catch their breath because they don't get enough oxygen. And so a lot of times energy levels improve because when we take gluten out of the diet, we're no longer inhibiting the absorption of these nutrients, and the body starts becoming nourished again. All right. So, so what happens when the average person, who again is not gluten sensitive, so they have you know done the test and they're not gluten sensitive, but as you mentioned before, someone who may be eating a lot of gluten, um, what happens when they go to zero? Do they notice a, a lot of benefits as well? What, I'd say that probably the biggest change that we see in somebody who just goes on a gluten-free diet is weight loss. And okay. you know, from a common sense perspective, you've got, you know, you've got, how do we fatten up a farm animal, right? I don't know if any of, any of your listeners ever farmed grain. or know farmers, but the quickest way to fatten up a farm animal is to feed them a bunch of grain. And it's no different in humans. The quickest way to fatten up a human is to feed a bunch of grain, and one of the reasons why uh, gluten does this, but there are also compounds in grain that like amylopectin is found in wheat, and, and these compounds are two to three times, sometimes four times more potent than just pure sugarcane at causing an insulin variation or an insulin spike. And so hormonally speaking, when you drive up insulin, you drive up storage of fat. The body starts storing more fat. So this is one of the big side effects we see in somebody who maybe they're not gluten sensitive and they're just going on the diet to try to lose weight is we see them take that, that insulin spike out, and so then their body starts saying, hey, we don't have to store all this. We're going to start using this fat and burning it as fuel, and so we see a lot of weight gain, or sorry, we see a lot of weight loss. And, and do you also see your your clients reducing their calorie intake by by switching to gluten-free foods and the, and the nutrition that you give them because it's probably going to be, you know, first of all, lower lower calorie foods or less calorie dense foods, but also they're not going to be hungry after they eat the the food because they're not going to have those insulin spikes. Is that something you see as well? Absolutely. So like when you when a person is used to eating grain, grain is very high in calories, very low in nutrients. And so one of the and there are also compounds within grain. Um these some of these compounds bind to minerals and inhibit mineral absorption. So what happens if a person eats a lot of grain is they become mineral deficient. And so then when minerals like magnesium are low, that, that turns on the hunger mechanism and makes that person want to eat more. Even though they've eaten more calories, they're still hungry and they want to eat more. So when we take that grain out, um, we see the insulin levels come down, but we also see the nutrient density of the foods improve. So when you're eating more meats, fruits, and vegetables as opposed to you know, a bunch of sandwiches or pastas or heavy carbohydrate-loaded foods, you're going to get – Less calories, but more nutrients in the food. And the more nutrients you have per calorie, the less stimulating your hunger mechanism becomes. And so you become you become more satisfied with smaller amounts of calories. Like me, I'm 170 pounds, and uh, and I CrossFit very regularly. I try to stay in pretty good shape. And on most days, I won't eat over 1,400 calories, but I still maintain. I still maintain that 170 pounds where, you know, the average the average recommendation for somebody 170 pounds is going to be somewhere around 22 to 2,400 calories a day. But I'm, a th- I'm almost 1,000 calories under that because the quality of my food and the nutrient density of my food is so great that my body becomes more efficient. And then you're high energy all day long too, right? I mean, I know Absolutely. from uh, from hanging around you. Yeah, I mean, you're um, – yeah, okay, so – Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to ask you, uh, just in terms of the average person's diet who's not gluten sensitive, what's considered a lot of gluten? So we talked a little bit earlier about how when you you said uh, if someone goes and is eating a lot of gluten, they might have problems. Do you have ranges of what is considered a lot of gluten? Is it two pieces of bread? Is it four pieces of bread per day? Is it a, a four pieces of bread plus a bowl of cereal? 
So I would say a lot of gluten is two servings or more a day. So serving size okay. being, you know, half a bagel, one piece of bread, half cup of cereal, half cup of pasta. And I mean that's that's obviously a very easy amount for most people to get heck just at at breakfast. Most some people probably are getting four servings, you know, when I think back to the the food guide and the pictures that they they put out for us of the cereal plus toast. So um Every, you know, people that aren't thinking about this and are eating grains are getting a lot of gluten, right? Absolutely. Okay. Now, another thing that I've read about, and I'm not uh, an expert like you on this, certainly, but and this is kind of a, a pitfall for people who are trying to do gluten-free diets, is that I've heard that there's a lot of hidden forms of gluten in sauces and condiments and all sorts of things that people might get at their restaurant or might be eating in their own out of their own fridge that they just don't realize is a problem. Yeah, hidden gluten is is probably one of the areas that that people with gluten sensitivity have the biggest problem. I mean, think about it. If you go to a restaurant, it could be as simple as you ordered the salad and maybe the the salad dressing is thickened with wheat starch. Or maybe you just ordered a cup of soup and they thickened it with wheat starch or some other grain-based starch. Uh, ketchup oftentimes will contain uh, grain-based thickeners. Mayonnaise can contain grain-based thickeners. So it, it becomes a problem if you don't read your labels. You have to become accustomed to reading labels to rule in or out whether or not there's there's gluten present. And oftentimes you can you can get cross-contamination, which is a little bit different than the hidden gluten. Hidden gluten is is you know. It's in there, and you don't really think about it. You don't read your label, and you end up getting it because you didn't think about it. But cross-contamination is when you go out to eat somewhere, and maybe the 16-year-old restaurant waiter, um, you know, you tell him you need it gluten-free, and he doesn't quite understand it, but he shakes his head as if he does and, you know, brings you something. And and uh, maybe it was a soy sauce they cooked it, that they cooked your steak in, and he didn't think it had any wheat in it or any other grain in it, but it did. Just that's what we would call cross-contamination. Or maybe they used the same cooking surface. To cook your food, that somebody uh, somebody else's you know food was cooked in, or maybe they shared the same oil where they had you know a chicken fried steak battered in wheat, and then they put your French fries or something in the same in the same oil. Not that those things are healthy, but everybody's going to deviate from their diet and have a cheat day. I certainly understand that, but where you run the risk in, well, in eating out is that cross contamination. Yeah, and, and so that brings up a, a question here: uh, How much gluten is needed? to cause somebody issues. Um, you know, you mentioned just even like cooking in the same pan or something. So if somebody is gluten sensitive, even something as small as that or, you know, a tablespoon of salad dressing, is that enough to uh, cause them trouble? And if so, how long does it take for them to kind of get healthy again after even a small relapse like that? So the the studies that have been done on on minimal exposure for damage give us a value somewhere around 20 parts per million, which is equivalent to one drop of water in a gallon of water. So that's not a whole lot of exposure to create uh, an inflammatory reaction or to create damage. Now, there's certainly a dose response. So the more that a person consumes, obviously, the more the damage is going to occur. But I have had autoimmune patients that would not heal unless they controlled every aspect and component of their food. So in essence, they were not able to really eat out because they were that sensitive. And not, we're not seeing that extreme sensitivity in everyone. But, but what research tells us is that 20 parts per million is enough to do damage and detriment. And, and then in those particular cases, those people had to go... Uh, hardcore, for lack of a better word, uh, kind of eating at home just for two months, I guess you would say, to figure this out? Right, to, to get it really figured out to where they were not perpetually poisoning themselves. Oh, that is unfortunate. Um, okay, so we have we covered everything in terms of the uh, hidden hidden sources there? Anything else you want to say on that? I think the biggest thing is just read the label carefully. If you've got a diagnosis of gluten sensitivity, uh, really read the label. It's just not worth it. Um, you know, I mean, you ask yourself why you're going gluten-free in the first place. I mean, 
the, probably somewhere in that answer is I want to be healthier. Um, and so then you have to start really asking yourself, well, if I got to read a label that's you know 20 words long and half the terms I can't pronounce without a biochemistry degree, how healthy is that really for me anyway? But but regardless, read those labels very carefully because that's where they're gonna that's where you're gonna find a lot of that hidden gluten. It it, it can be literally in anything. I mean, you can get hidden gluten by um, licking an envelope or a stamp where they use a gluten adhesive. Wow. So I mean, it can come on things that are not even edible. Um, and and then uh, with that, <laughs> there's hardly going to be any foods that are in a box that are gluten-free, right? Um, okay, so some examples of gluten-free foods that are relatively safe. If, let's just say I, I, one of the recipes I like to make is a spaghetti squash where we'll bake a squash and and pull it out and use the squash as spaghetti, and then we'll you know make ground beef and we'll add a spaghetti sauce to it. So you can buy it. Spaghetti sauce in a jar, and there's a brand that I buy. Yep. It's got it's got tomato and and olive oil and carrots and onions and garlic. I mean, all those all those names, you know what they are. You can pronounce them. There's no other hidden or added ingredients. I feel relatively safe with things like that. So again, if you're buying something that's canned or jarred, it it can be very safe. It just you know again, read that label because a lot of things you'd be surprised if you don't read labels already you'll be surprised at what you see when you do start reading labels how much stuff is in there that you didn't even think about perfect perfect okay so so someone has learned that they're gluten sensitive or maybe they're not they ha- they haven't learned that for sure yet but they want to uh to move over to a gluten free diet well i guess let's talk about how you would get somebody to kind of change would you have them go cold turkey would you have them just like eliminate all gluten uh right off the bat or how does someone kind of make that transition what do you have people do i think you have to judge the character of the person it's it's like anything else some people can quit smoking cold turkey some people have to wean and use crutches i think to be successful you have to do you have to kind of go with what works for the person and follow up and monitor and help them and kind of keep them on that proverbial wagon. So let's say you're taking some somebody who's used to eating cereal for breakfast, pasta for lunch, and, and a sandwich at dinner. You know, what you may start start them on is a, a, a slow wean, a titration, where they're trying to remove the three major foods, the bread, the pasta, the cereal, but not worrying so much about the smaller cross-contaminations, not worrying so much about any of the ingredients and absolutely everything because there's a transition when you go gluten-free it's a learning curve it's like learning algebra you don't go home and all of a sudden you know algebra because you practiced it one night it's learning it's it's experiencing it's it's gaining the wisdom as you're going gluten-free and and i've even seen patients that were gluten-free veterans that had been you know gluten-free for several months and you know got accidental exposure because they made a mistake that they just hadn't experienced or or known about yet so I think you just have to take into consideration the, the individual nature of the person. Are they a cold turkey person or are they the kind that need to wean? Because the success depends on their willingness to not be paralyzed by overanalyzing or being overwhelmed initially by the diet. Okay. And and what do you have in terms of tips? Like what do you tell people to to focus on first or, uh, you know, to choose in emergency situations where they're you know, in a convenience store and they're starving? Is there any kind of just maybe a couple of real top tips that tend to work for a lot of people that you might have to share? Yeah, so if you're if you're kind of in a in a in a tight fix and you're really hungry, uh one thing is is nuts. Uh nuts are really easy. They're filling. Because of the fat content they're gonna give you good satiety, your appetite is going to be reduced as a result of eating them and they're pretty much available anywhere. Pistachios or or cashews or almonds or you know pecans whatever you can get a hold of provided that they're not glazed and honey you know that's that's sweetened with with uh or or rather that's dusted in wheat flour or something like that so again reading the label applies but you can generally find really quick and easy things in a convenience store or in an airport lobby uh or in a grocery store like when somebody's traveling and they're really new to it you know that one of the simplest things to do is go down go through the produce section and pick up some some fruit and maybe some hand vegetables you know like carrot sticks or or uh broccoli those are all really simple and really easy things to do 
uh, as you're making that transition. Because again, where the problem is, if you're used to buying your food and eating out, and and you're really sensitive, you can you can really mess up your progress uh, by going in somewhere and 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 getting cross contamination. Um, I'm just going to go back to one of the grains, one that's really popular these days is quinoa. Now, where does it stand in terms of uh, being or containing gluten? Because a lot of people will will claim that something like that is gluten free. It is technically, but it's not. Quinoa is a seed. It's not the seed. See, grain is defined as the seed of grass. So we have different varieties of grasses, and they sprout their seeds, and that's what we define as grain. Uh, quinoa is, is a type of seed, but not so much of a grass. But it has a there's a there's a kind of gluten called prolamine, and uh, quinoa has a lot of prolamine in it, which tends to irritate people with gluten sensitivity. And a lot of people go to quinoa pasta as a substitute, and they end up not getting better. So again, we 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 have to consider why we're going gluten free in the first place. But the other component to this, Craig, is that there was a study just published last year. They they did a study where they pulled the products off of grocery store shelves at random. And these products were supposed to be gluten-free. Like they they were inherently gluten-free, like quinoa or almond flour, these types of things. And they analyzed them for gluten content. So they sent them out to a lab and they analyzed them for gluten. And they found that 41% of these products had enough gluten in them to do damage. And quinoa was one of them. So when it comes to quinoa, I say word of caution. Um, You know, the... You're running a risk, certainly, by by using it if you're gluten sensitive, and you haven't validated or verified that your source that you're getting it from is a 100% gluten free facility. And there are versions and brands out there where they focus on only producing this one particular element or this one particular food product. Whereas a lot of companies they'll produce wheat in their facility, peanuts in their facility, all kinds of different things. And so there's that risk for cross contamination. But if you have a dedicated facility, then then you can tend to trust that a little bit more. Okay. And then again, it's a matter of looking for the label and seeing you know, a lot of those, uh, you know, certainly a lot of foods uh, processed at comp- uh, companies where they also do nuts will, will put that in their labels. And then hopefully that, uh, you know, maybe some of these companies will also put that they also process wheat. Would they put that on their labels too? Or is that something that you're going to have to learn by yeah, trial so- and error? Well, no, in the U.S., the, the, there are certain allergies that you have to, absolutely have to um, put on a food label. And so, like, if a product may contain wheat, dairy, soy, or peanuts, then it, it will be on the label. So, like, if it says this product was processed in a facility that also processes wheat, that would be kind of a warning for you to say, oh, maybe that's cross-contamination, maybe I'm not going to go there. So, so if someone has a gluten sensitivity, they have to treat it like a, you know, a mother would treat the food of a child who has a peanut allergy, who is just, you know, that serious. Like, you know, there's absolutely no exceptions. Uh, we're looking at the labels. We're scrutinizing them that seriously. That's my advice because unlike a peanut allergy, a peanut allergy can kill a child by creating an anaphylactic reaction, although we don't typically see anaphylaxis with gluten. The problem is gluten does insidious damage over time. And so by the time a person is sick enough to get a diagnosis, they've created 20 or 30 years worth of damage. And and to me, I would rather have an acute peanut allergy than a gluten sensitivity that went unrecognized because at least with an acute allergy reaction, you can identify it and remove it from the diet. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Okay, so a couple more things. Now, what we've talked about in terms of foods that are gluten-free sounds pretty straightforward, but it sounds like people are going to be giving up a lot of uh, their favorite meals. Um, but I'm sure that, uh, you know, a guy like you has put together or come across some really great recipes. So is there, are there, you know, the, are there the opportunities for people to enjoy, you know, different versions of their favorite foods when they're going gluten-free? Absolutely. I mean, some of my favorite foods, I'm actually gluten sensitive, so some of my favorite foods are recipes that my wife has created as a result of not being able to do things like pizza, not being able to eat things like spaghetti or sandwiches. 
Uh, we'll do we'll do fajita wraps with. I mean, you can use coconut wraps. You can use uh, butterleaf lettuce as a wrap. You can make a, one of the best pizzas I've ever had. is is it has a meat crust as opposed to a dough based crust. Um, so I mean, there's a number of foods that you know traditionally that people grow up on that they love that they want to experience and continue to experience. That that you can get ideas for, create recipes for um, that are going to be just as good, if not better than their gluten-containing counterparts. Excellent. And then uh, last thing, why don't you just tell us what you tend to eat in a day so that people can uh, have a good idea of what the the good doctor eats on his gluten-free diet. Okay, so this morning for breakfast I had, um, every week we take uh, grass-fed beef and buffalo and we patty it up with different seasonings and spices and and into about an eighth pound of... uh, little patties that are about an eighth pound in weight. And we make about 40, 60 of these things, and we put them in the freezer. And so for breakfast, I'll I'll take a couple of them out, and I'll put them in a, in a pan with a little bit of water and put a lid on it and let those simmer. It takes about 15 minutes to cook. And then aside from that, I'll have a piece of fruit and maybe a handful of almonds. I like bananas. I like berries. I like apples. So it just depends on what's what's available, what's in season. I like fresh fruit. So if I can get something fresh and organic... And in season, that's what I'm typically going to go for. Right now, blueberries are hot. They're in season. So I'm going to eat blueberries every day that I can because a few months from now, we're not going to be getting them. Uh, for, for lunch, today I went home. Uh, my wife cooked a, a really good dinner last night. It was uh, She um, she took a, a chicken, a whole chicken, and she put it in a um, crock pot, and she slow cooked it. And uh, she made a, I don't know if you guys know, we're in Texas, so salsa verde is something that is kind of popular here. But it's like a green salsa made out of uh, okay. a green pepper. And so she made, she just took some of those chili peppers like that and she made this salsa and just marinated that and slow cooked it. So that was what I had for lunch today and that's what I also had for dinner last night. But we also had uh, a big pile of salad. I like to use uh, mixed greens and uh, and green chard. And uh, on our salads, we'll slice up, we'll thinly slice up strawberries, maple, maybe sprinkle some sunflower seeds. Instead of a dressing, I just squirt uh, fresh lemon or lime juice and uh, and olive oil on my salad, and it gives it enough texture and taste to satisfy me. It actually, is, to me, is a lot better than the salad dressings you can buy in the store. And then, um, and then for dinner, let's see. Last I told you what I had, I had the same thing for dinner and lunch yesterday and today, but uh, prior to that. Uh, for dinner, my wife made a meatloaf, and she used, uh, instead of using any kind of grain to thicken the meatloaf, she used uh, cabbage, sliced up cabbage, sliced up carrots, mm-hmm. and some almond meal and egg to hold the meatloaf together. And then, of course, garlic and onions, and and, uh, and she just put tomato paste over the top of that and baked it. So that was what we had for dinner the night before. So, I mean, there's a lot, again, there's a lot of classic recipes that you can have that probably are already eating you just you just create them in a gluten-free way create them in a in a way where you're not going to have all the different grains fantastic this is awesome peter uh really appreciate this i know everyone listening is really going to appreciate the clarification on such a hot topic um and the exact details coming from an expert like yourself so thank you very much is there anything else you want to add uh here on our first call no, I think I think that if somebody's contemplating going gluten free, I think the best thing that that they can do is 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 really to get an answer definitively. If if you if you cannot afford genetic testing, is is to just do a trial gluten free diet. Just do it, commit to it for a month. And you know, proverbially, the speaking, the proof is always in the pudding. If you feel tremendously better, does it really matter whether you're gluten sensitive or not? Changing the diet made you feel better, so go with it. Uh, there's nothing, you know, yeah, there's an old saying, nothing tastes so good as it feels to be thin. Well, I, I kind of changed that statement to say nothing tastes so good as it feels to be healthy. And uh, when you're healthy, you, you're you more functional. You can do more. You, you can enjoy life more. You're just, you're more awake and more alert to the things in the world that matter. And so many people focus on food. You know, there's another another old saying, food equals love. We all grew up with, you know, people baking and making us foods that were, you know, probably not great for us, but out of love they were doing that. And so we've created a culture in the U.S. that is very food-centric. And I just say, 
look at it differently. Change your it's a switch in your mind. Just turn that switch and say, I'm not going to look at food as as a necessity for happiness. I'm going to look at health as a necessity for happiness. It's a good way of thinking. And uh, one last thing there that you mentioned: if someone was going to try the gluten free diet, they should give it a full four weeks. Right? It's not a, a week thing. It's not a two week thing. It's if you really want to figure out. Even if, like you said, if the diet just makes you feel healthy or not, it should be a full month. You should really give it a shot like that. Yeah, and and most doctors and most experts say even longer, really six months, because you have a percentage okay. of people who go gluten-free who won't respond in the first month. It, it really can sometimes take up to six. But Fantastic. for those of, for those of your listeners who would give it a month and notice a difference, I think a large percentage of them would would feel that way if they, even if they just did give it a month. Okay. That's that's great. Really 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 helpful information, Peter. Thank you very much. Um again, your website is uh, glutenfreehealthsolution.com and and if somebody did want to go through and actually get the testing, how would uh, what's the website for your office that they would contact? So, my office in my clinic is townsenterwellness.com. And uh, they can call my office and, and uh, they can ask for Diana or Debbie or, or uh, Patricia or Casey. And uh, they'll, they'll direct them in the right direction to get tested. It's very simple. You don't have to be a patient in my office to come in if you don't want to actually visit a doctor and you just want to have an answer. Genetic testing is as easy as sending you an envelope with, with cheek swabs that we can send to the DNA lab. Great, great. So towncenterwellness.com. Yeah, and that's town with so T-O-W-N. Perfect. And, uh, again, thanks, Peter, for being on the call. We really appreciate it. We look forward to hearing from you again. I know we're going to get a lot of, lots of questions, and we also want to go uh, more in-depth with even more advanced uh, gluten-free information. So we'll be back on another call soon. And thanks, everybody, for listening. This is another fantastic call. And this is Craig Ballantyne, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye, everyone.